0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the CRE Podcast, also known as the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I am Adam Pawatik, co-host, sitting here with Aaron Cameron. Our guest today is Matthew Smith, the Executive Vice President of National Retail Investment at JLL. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you very much, Adam. So Matt, I'm sure most people in retail know his name at some level, especially you know here in Ontario. He's been active for I guess be north of twenty years. North of
1: twenty years now, yeah. Yeah,
0: and involved in uh, a lot of a lot of large transactions over the years. Just to kind of you know kick this off, it'd be great to get a little background on the JLL National Investment Group, and then you know your your entree into the industry and you know up to this moment.
1: Sure. I run the national group for JLL across the country. That entails, we have team members in Vancouver, Calgary, Winnipeg, Toronto, Montreal, and Halifax. And we focus purely on retail investment, meaning we broker shopping centers for our clients. We do it in not just the major markets across the country, but we like to say, I think we've done transactions in about 122 markets in every province across the country. And as Adam said, I've been I've been doing it over 20 years. Started with uh, CBRE back in the uh, mid 90s, and transferred over to JLL about five years ago. Brought the whole team over. Oh, so it wasn't just your shift. It was your whole team that. Uh, yeah, came we brought uh, we brought everybody with us, yeah. including guys in other markets, and decided to build the team at JLL. It's gone exceedingly well. We've really found a, a niche across the country, and business has taken off in in most markets. Is JLL focused predominantly on retail. or Do they do all asset classes? JLL is a international real estate brokerage. So we're second largest in the world what the number is, 80 countries around the world. And in Canada, we focus on everything from industrial leasing, office leasing, investment, as well as we have a large corporate services group as well as a large construction group as well.
0: You know who's in the, in the number three spot in the list of largest brokerages? I assume CBRE is number one. CBRE
1: is number one yeah. or number two, and I think it's a mishmash beyond depending on what angle you look at it. Okay, yeah.
2: who, who are like, and you know, maybe for our listeners, just give some scope. Who are the major players in that in this brokerage market? Just Canada and in Canada, yeah.
1: And to say that we're not number two in Canada, we actually, from JL's perspective, again, second largest in the world, largest in many countries around the world, but in Canada, really didn't, I guess, focus and. Emerge in Canada till about five years ago, so uh, still growing rapidly in Canada. Other major players: cushman Wakefield, Colliers, Avison. I'd say in a national scale, that's who who's remaining. And then the investment banks on the investment side: the TDs and the RBCs.
0: That's who you. You see the table when you're trying to win business. And, yeah, most yeah. of our
1: most of our time, if you talk about national business on the investment side, most of our competition comes from either CBRE or one of the major major banks.
2: I'm curious how that how that works. So so a major property investor comes to you and says I'd like to sell or buy, but I'm talking to these other 3 brokerages, how does the pricing work? Like, Is it just, a, I'll do it for a lesser fee than those guys, or I have a better scope, or I, I know bet more people that would be willing to, to purchase your particular type of asset? Like, what are, what are the factors that you typically go into as a differentiator
1: trying to win the business? Again, I'll say our team at JLL on the retail side, we're the only national retail investment team in the country, so these other brokerages don't have that platform. They have strong players in many markets, but they don't have that national structure that we have. So that's a distinct advantage right out of the gate for us. But when it comes to actual, you know, perhaps in an individual market in the Toronto and bidding against some of these other strong competitors, I think you have to, price comes into it sometimes, unfortunately quite frankly, Mm -hmm. with with some clients, uh, because that's not always the only thing to consider. But we like to focus on, you know, what's the creativity behind the deal? What are the different options you have? What's our reach in terms of buyers? You know, how can we differentiate the property, not just ourselves, but talking about, you know, what are the different options for the property and, and how can we view it in a different light, perhaps, than what most people would think. Look at putting it on a pedestal perhaps that sets it apart. And you really have to get in that's a lot of forward thinking before you get into the pitch. A lot of you know, not every sometimes you drive by a shopping center, they all look the same or they they all suffer from the same ills. But when you really start digging down, you realize where you can perhaps you have to really money. know the asset before you sit in front of that client. You have to know the asset and, and I think it's experience. Like I said, we've been doing this over twenty years. We do about fifty transactions a year across the country. So experience leads to some of that advantage as well.
0: I, I will admit that driving through the suburbs, the, a lot of the malls do tend to blur together and <laughs> look uh, look the same. But they tell us to have a lot more national tenants in them. So as a financer, I love seeing that because the rent roll's going to be a lot cleaner.
1: Sure. I joke to my kids. I say, actually, Canadian retail at times can become boring. You go to the States and get all excited because they say, oh, look at that restaurant and look at that. and uh, I've never seen that grocery store before, whereas here we kind of roll out. We got three three of everything. We got Three grocery stores and three pharmacies and three home improvement stores, et cetera, et cetera. I guess safety and security and and consistency sometimes works.
2: How important is marketing in your business? From maybe on both sides, marketing the property when you've secured the client and and marketing just making
1: sure the clients know that you're there, that you're an option. Very important. We, again, time in the business has a lot to do with that. So, you know, over 20 years of doing this, you naturally, your name becomes known. It's a number people call or an email people know. Would
2: you must, you know, you're five years into Canada. Do you find you're still, still a bit of an uphill battle where you're not the first, people don't think, hey, I got to sell my property, I better
1: called JLL. They probably think I should reach out to CBRE or one of the other competitors. Yeah, and I think I think it's a product by product. So again, our platform was well established before we came. Mm-hmm. But JLL certainly had those growing pains in the first 2 3 years that you know were they at the table on this pitch were they at the table on that pitch no because they were the new player and so you go to the traditional guys you always go to i think now 5 years in we've overcome a lot of that great we find and not just uh, you know i talk about the retail we've got national industrial investment guys across the country office investment a newly a relatively newly formed uh, apartment platform as well apartment platform yeah. as well and so it's a really the, the great thing that we've found because you know under 5 years wasn't established before doesn't have long established practices in terms of how to do things we've created a new way of doing things and these national teams and cooperation and involvement of everybody across the country is really it shouldn't be because it makes sense, but in the traditional Canadian investment brokerage world, it doesn't exist anywhere else. It's usually small, you know, kingdoms I guess across the country. Of fiefdoms, different guys, fiefdoms, uh, people doing their things and keeping their elbows up and keeping everybody else out. Beyond people, some people wouldn't believe it when you see JL. But we sit down every you know, every week. We're on a call with all the guys, and that's not just our retail guys, but our industrial guys and our. And How the, many people is that? say 20 for the, the top guys across the okay. country.
2: And um, it's just sharing ideas, sharing what's going on in your particular who, industry?
1: Who are you meeting with? Like every meeting we have, we tell everybody who we're meeting with. What's our pitches coming up? What are our pursuits? What are our listings right now? How are the listings going? How many bids do we have on this? How many bids? So I know what the apartment guys are doing if they're meeting with guys, which is really rare. There's a lot of crossover,
2: too, though, right? I mean, imagine you got, I mean, we know sitting in the financing group,
1: a lot of our clients play in lots of different asset classes. And that's, that's the strength of it that I can walk into. I can be an investor's group in Winnipeg and say, hey, what, you know, I just heard you're dealing with our guys in Montreal on an office building, and how's that going, et cetera, et cetera, which you don't find in a, in a lot of other brokerage shops right now.
0: And as, as a testament to Matt's national coverage, I probably know him best from all the real estate forums across the country. He follows them around like uh, it's the Grateful Dead on tour. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the same phases. So I, I, see, I see him more in cities outside of Toronto where we both live than inside. But do you find difficulty in trying to cover a country the size of Canada?
1: Absolutely. My wife finds it difficult for me to cover the country the size of Canada. Yeah. I'm like always jumping on a plane somewhere. In this modern age, you wouldn't think that we'd have to have that much face time with people. you think you get on uh, conference calls and, and video call conferencing. But it's important to get out there and meet people face-to-face we hear see the product.
2: Our, sorry, we hear it from our guests regularly that one of the things that typically people are attracted to in real estate is it's one of the few remaining relationship industries sure. right? where you need to have that relationship. It needs to be a face-to-face interaction on a regular basis in order to maintain that Familiarity and comfort.
0: So, out of, I'm going to ask you about you're trying to keep this more national scope. Out sure. of the 122 markets you've done deals in, what is currently your favorite city to do deals in? <laughs> Good
1: question. <laughs> you can't say Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're going to, so we'll cross Toronto off the list. Yeah. That's fine. It's a combination of where do I like to go to versus what do I like to sell? <laughs> your favorite
0: steakhouse? Uh, yeah, no, like, exactly. <laughs> it's,
1: it's enjoyable to go to Vancouver, but it's very difficult to do a deal there. I love going to Halifax but also it's difficult, it's, to, do it's a a difficult to do a deal <laughs> for, different, for much different <laughs> yeah, reasons yeah. and so you can lay, lay it out like that across the country you know what a couple of great markets so those I'd say the major markets but maybe a little bit off not the Toronto Vancouver Calgary Montreal maybe you step back to an Ottawa or you step back to you know an Edmonton Edmonton not right now we can talk about that later But you step back to some of these secondary uh, major markets, and when you do get product there, there's great interest, great velocity from all the uh, institutional buyers. Because they have to pick up product in these markets, they're usually strong, stable, good income levels, and so uh, retail there looks really good. It's usually a pretty straightforward transaction to do.
2: Can we jump in a little bit to the more of the, the specifics on retail, Matt? Let's clear the air about you know just the the notion that retail is a dying asset class, and you know everybody should be stay clear because eventually we're all going to be shopping online. So what's your response to that? Absolutely. No.
1: <laughs> no, it, it, is, it is the topic of the day. I, I was doing, I had to do a couple of public speaking engagements back, right, or the week that Target announced that they were walking out of Canada. And so, you know, I, I became overwhelmed with Target questions. And, and now here I'm sitting with you guys as Sears has announced mm-hmm. their troubles. Now, this is nothing that was unexpected. We've been kind yeah, of waiting. You, if you have walked through a Sears in the last year or yeah. two, you could have—it it was easy, easy to tell. Yeah. yeah. So it's something we've been dealing with the unknown for a while. So now perhaps we're dealing with the known, which I guess is a good thing, although there's still a long ways to go. But dealing with whether it be the Sears or Hudson's Bay is having issues, and obviously Target leaving and a number of the other tenants again having greater struggles.
2: No, the market's responded for the most part. I mean, there. I know there are some some assets that are still really tr- challenged, but for the most part, it seems like those
1: that space has been absorbed now. The, the target, space, the target I mean, space. Let's not talk about the Sears. Space. Yeah, we'll say seventy five percent of the target space has been absorbed. Eighty percent.
2: Is it a case that the Sears? Let's you know, play worst case scenario that Sears really does just sort of exit and closes down most of their their stores or all of their stores? Is that the straw that breaks the camel's back? Like it's just one too many empty large.
1: Large space? No, I think again. I think there's. It's the same story as with Target. That you've got the haves and have-nots. You know, I think number one in all their spaces across the country, we're talking about two dollar net rents, three dollar net rents. So it's very cheap space. So in the good markets, in the good locations, in the good malls, that's going to be a boon to any landlord. You're going to be able to figure that out. There's tenants. There's still capacity to put tenants in there and and make massive returns on that Sears space. Obviously, there's going to be those hurt in secondary markets, tertiary markets, two-story Sears and one-story malls, all those things you picture, you go, wait a minute, what am I going to do? There's only so many interesting concepts you can put into 60, 80, 120,000 square feet. So there are going to be those hurt. And it's, you know what, I think there's also uh, a lot of leasing groups just give a big sigh of relief because they're through most of the target issues. Well, ramp it up boys cuz now you got to you got to do, do it again. One. Well, at least yeah.
2: they've kind of they've got the infrastructure in place they, to do it. They've got the plan. They just yeah. got to dust it off and get going again. Not even that much dust on it either. No. No, no. So who who do you see or who is filling that target space? I mean, is it a combination of some space being demised and repositioned or is there
1: is there a couple sort of big stores that are that are taking advantage of the newly available space? I think we're a little early on the um, Sears projection to figure out who's going to go in there, but certainly with Target you know the first tranche was getting all the canadian tire's and the lawblaws and the lows into a number of the locations
0: like hit the kind of like the top 30% of the locations
1: sure and you you, yeah. you know slide them into the box and it fits and it works were there bidding wars you think for some of those locations i
0: mean some target
1: locations were fantastic so were there yes. often
2: where everybody put their hand up
1: and then all a yeah, great th- situation for the landlords you had 3 4 opportunities on on each one but that's a, a very limited number okay. a very limited cuz you're usually dealing with even if it is a great location even if it is a great store most of those retailers had, had something, something within a sure. Kilometer yeah, so you may only end up with one or two. But in terms of alternative uses, you know, there was a long list of those mid box retailers. The winners: the H and M, the Giant, the Giant Tiger, best buy. in some secondary, you put best Dollarama buy. in that, that group. Uh, Dollarama, yes, although they're a little tougher because of the the size, they're a little smaller. Mm-hmm. So you gotta you lose the back half of the box if you slide them into a unit. I mean, the great problem with most of these boxes is. You can put 20,000 square foot tenants at in the front at the front, front. but you're going to lose a whole chunk of the back. And there's not enough call centers and you know dead storage space and for, for yeah. all that space. I hear
2: center. I've heard of data centers or server server sure. banks going into the, that type of space as well. Sure, sure. Anything else that's unique that you would say that's maybe that's out of the out of left
1: field or that that would be surprising to our listeners? Well, I think. I think the big, you know, as is, is people try to reimagine what these larger malls look like, and even, you know, the mid the 300,000 square foot enclosed malls, it's all about how do you draw people to the mall. It used to be these department stores drew people to the mall, and therefore all your other stores, you know, fed off of that. So you remove the department stores, you've still got all these other, perhaps quality tenants in there how do you draw people what's the uh, interesting wow factor and what's the entertainment factor for families coming to the mall and so you see a lot more entertainment concepts you see a lot more party concepts we're talking see. like like glow in the dark mini putt like what do you that's so for the, that's that's uh, for the smaller malls yes yeah. There's uh, one that recently sold in Saskatoon it has a large mini putt facility in it. And I was joking with the owner of it, and they said that actually is a $200,000 a year business. The mall owns it. Right. And so oh, that's a $200,000 really? in income <laughs> for us off that mini putt, in the dark, so we're actually not getting rid of it. Great date spot if you're 14 <laughs> years exactly. old. <laughs> exactly. I remember
0: um, when I was in university, Masonville Mall in London had one operating in the epicenter as well there. I don't know if it still does, but it was busy all the time. And you know, I I spent a little money there. So I guess the,
1: the, the concept works. It's uh, so you can you can design these you know entertainment spaces. And how do you get people in? But it's also just the retailers you're putting in. How am I? What kind of retailer is going to draw people and be an interest factor? Things like that we don't think about as entertainment. And I read that
0: restaurants falls in the same category, that a lot more restaurants are popping up in
1: malls Restaurant now. increase, increasing your percentage of restaurants used to be you know at 20%, and now you put it up to 30% and 35%. Talk about pure space. total space of the total, total, total square footage of, yeah, the, and of that, the mall. That obviously varies on a mall by mm-hmm. mall, but you know Cheesecake Factory going into a lot of the malls in the States, but it's coming to Yorkdale. Yorkdale's not a, a mall that's suffering, obviously, but other concepts are like, like that. But people are very
0: excited for the Cheesecake Factory to show up there.
1: Oh, it's <laughs> ridiculous. They say the, the reservations are, you have to, like for October, it's opening in September, I think, and the reservations are already a month beyond the really? uh, opening date, and who knows.
0: I'll, I'll admit that I'm a little bit excited for <laughs> <see> the
2: <laughs>
0: Coming to a mall near you. Maybe let's
2: say on that topic. Any other uh, interesting retailers or restaurants that you see migrating north from,
1: from the U.S.? Or that you would like to see? Maybe not that you'd know of, but just that you think this would make sense. It's probably not my my strength to talk about the you know where the who the next uh, sure. the big wave is. Certainly, it's probably more on a smaller scale, more boutique, less Nordstrom and Target style. And yeah, it's, yeah. it's not going to yeah. be somebody that's going to take out thirty locations. We're talking about there's going to be specific guys coming into uh, the Vancouver and Toronto markets. Uh, when is an outburger Out
2: Burger coming to Canada? <laughs> so, the West Coast. <laughs> There's a few like that. Are there already? To see. Are no, ca- no, 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 no. When's Trader it. Joe's coming to Canada? Well, that's uh, I've, I've, another I've, one. <laughs> I've, 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 don't answer that. So I, I asked you this earlier, and also before we got on air, there are a lot, and maybe this is on the same line of thought. You know, with these stores like Target and potentially Sears leaving, and you've got these enclosed malls, and in many smaller markets throughout the country, you know, smaller markets. Let's call it ten to fifty thousand people, right? And these malls are, you know, you walk around them, and it's typically mom and pop retailers. They seem to be sort of. Between fifteen and thirty percent vacant, but are they are they viable? Like can can those types of those types of enclosed malls and those types of locations continue to thrive or continue to survive in this condition, in this retail condition, or this retail environment? I should say,
1: yeah, I I, I would say, uh, we, and we have actually transacted a lot of those types of uh, centers across the country. Probably about fifteen in the past year and a half. you actually you have a better chance with a mall like that in a market like that than you do with a mall like that in a suburban market. So hmm. you're sitting with a 300,000 square foot enclosed mall that maybe had a Sears, has a Sears, had a Target, and you're in a, uh, a market of 25,000, you're probably going to be do- doing okay because you're the only game in town. Versus being in the same situation in a Georgetown or a Burnaby Milton or Burnaby and these where you've got major competition from the regional malls. But it's also, we, we look at a lot of these small markets and say, what do they, what do they have going for them? Do they have a hospital? If they have a regional hospital, thumbs up, because Mm. that Mm. town's going to continue to do well. Government services are going to be there. Do they have a college or a university? Another checkmark, great. So Mm. it's those kind of, why is this town here? It's not about the industry, because industry comes and goes. It's more fickle, but those government services, if they're in that town, that bodes well. And therefore it bodes well if you 're the one regional retail center in that uh, are you that not town are well. you
2: not s- exposed though to to a, a, a competitor another another developer opening up a, a similar type of mall that you know m- newer with different tenants
1: across the street other side of town well, the <laughs>
0: land requirements would be tough i think
1: right yeah well yeah. There, the, even if even if there's land available it 's generally the cost and risk associated with somebody coming in and trying to do that i mean Smart centers going across the country with Walmart, which mostly has played its you know, it's played its way out. Right. So they're there now. And if they're there and you're still there, you're probably you're, you're gonna good. be okay. If you're number two in that market, which is hard to believe in some of these small markets, but if you're the second enclosed mall, then maybe I start to have some questions as to whether it survives. It's also you know, everybody loves going to the ICSC conference in Vegas and talking about lifestyle centers and these beautiful things with flowing water and trees and everything else. If anybody's ever been to a Timmins or, you know, Quebec City Le, Levy or, or or any of the winter markets in Canada. That doesn't exist. What exists is a place so you can go in the doors, you can unwrap the kid from their snowsuit in the stroller and you can go shopping and you can get your groceries and you can go to Dollarama and you can go to the bank and then you wrap the kid back up and you go out the door. But I've and always wondered about that but they
0: open air malls in this, mar- in this market. It's uh, it's then
1: Even in places like Toronto and Vancouver, we sit around and we talk about lifestyle and how about this and changing things in big box but you go to these malls and you talk, I mean we do it all the time. We're, we'll walk into a center and we'll talk to the actual customers or we'll talk to the lady at the service counter at the grocery store and they tell you those stories and they go no 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 you we would never go to a big box mall in this town have you ever been here in january have you ever been here in the dead of winter it makes a lot of sense it,
2: it is the trend in
1: southern ontario
2: right now for these sort of discount or um Outlet. outlet malls kind of popping up that are sort of, in that sense, they're sort of outside and you got to walk between stores. Is that predominant across the country? Is this that just a thing that's happening in southern Ontario because of just how frothy the market is here? Predominant
1: in uh, in Vancouver, certainly. Yeah. Uh, I've had two, two major openings in Montreal. So, Again, developers are still building them. It's also a cost factor. Don't put a roof to build an yeah, enclosed sure. mall today is a, an enormous venture, whereas these are more, much more cost-effective. You know, All that said, though, I, I was going to say the second trend in these enclosed uh, malls, especially this is perhaps the suburban enclosed within range of some of these regional malls, is certainly to demall them, to cut down on your costs, to you know, face the streets. Just to, talk that through a little bit. What does demall mean? What, 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 what does that entail? So you've got I mean, and these are generally your two hundred to three hundred and fifty thousand square foot malls. You've got perhaps your dead anchor at one end. So let's start that dead anchor, cut the front off so you can get those fifteen thousand square foot boxes. Turn it outside, inside out, so everybody faces out into the parking lot. And then the enclosed portion again, cut the back half off and move all the tenants up to the front. <laughs> so you downsize your mall, get rid of enclosed spaces, you cut down on costs, you have a better street presence. Really modernize the whole thing, and then and then
2: hopefully free up some excess land that can be severed and redeveloped or sold or whatever. Yeah,
1: and again, what what is tough in a small market? Yeah, tough. But what what is the use for that? You you've got a mall that's at the center of you know transportation services. You probably if you've got bus and transit, you're probably on the transit line. You've got uh, good access by car, so. Are you going to put, you know, walk-up housing? Are you going to put seniors' housing, you know, government-assisted housing, things like that, on that back half, unused portion? Because you're probably in a pretty good space.
2: Yeah, predominantly. I mean, in those small markets, there's one retail strip. Right, that then that's where these malls are, are, reside. Who, what kind of investment? Like, who are the who are the players that are that are? You said you sold, I think, fifteen or sixteen mm-hmm. of these in the last year. Who's who's buying it? Right? I, mean, I don't you don't have to name names, yeah, but who's but bullish on? Them. Yeah, but what what are the what type of groups? Is it pension fund backed? Is it private investors?
1: Like, who are the people that are seeing these as opportunities? No, I'd say the the people exiting every one of these ones we've sold is for either a REIT or a pension fund advisor. So that's who's getting out. Uh, Why is that? Is it headline risk? Basically, talking about you know, if you put out your, uh, if you put go to your quarterly uh, call and you say, listen, X amount, it's it's what Rio can does, it's what uh, First Cap does. We're in major markets, we're an urban retail player. We're this. Let's get that percentage of tertiary market down, and so they're exiting all these malls. Most of the people entering are opportunity private players, developers. There's probably about a quarter of them are foreign capital. Mm-hmm. That sees it as a uh, you know a, a cheap way of getting into Canada. Um, it's a pretty
0: substantial chunk. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, the, these uh, some of these these malls while they look substantial, they're probably price points are fifteen to twenty million. So that's in that range where a lot of private foreign players can get in. What kind of cap rate is that? Depending on the market. Again, these are secondary tertiary markets. You're anywhere from a seven to a. We sold some in Newfoundland last year that were ten plus. You know, for enclosed malls. It's a healthy
0: return. Yeah, you don't yeah, see
1: that, I, sitting, you will not see that anywhere else. Yeah, you're sitting at <laughs> your desk anywhere.
2: in Toronto looking at three caps, thinking, hmm, well, yeah.
1: It's not 10 caps we're we're working sub four here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's it's a night and day. At the huh. other at
0: the end of the spectrum, what's the, the lowest cap rate you've seen on a, a building that did not have a substantial upside outside of the current NOI?
1: We sold one at the end of last year in Toronto that was newly leased. Not a large deal, fifteen million dollars. But we had forty-three offers on it. And we sold it at a three point four cap with long term leases with no immediate development upside.
0: You, you can't see it, but Aaron and I both just raised our eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, the, really, yeah. there are some that have sold in you know Vancouver that are in the sub three, but there's always a question of development and different things going on with some of those.
0: And in, the, in that bidding group, was there a few groups that were in the, the kind of mid three cap area, or was it one buyer? Uh, was it one buyer
1: that really kind of jumped out? We had ten below a four cap. Wow. Okay. So a lot of people see value at that range. Yeah. I think, I think the interesting thing about it when you talk about the market, especially in a place like Toronto or Vancouver, isn't necessarily the cap rate. It's the fact that you had 10 guys under four. And of those 43 offers, I'd say all of them were under five and a quarter.
2: And then you said this is long term. This is just like grab and hold, put your money down, and sit and sit sit yeah. and let it. So, and you could, you, so you, I mean, yeah, and so you could, in theory, you know, project your returns over a thirty year horizon and justify the cap rate in kind of that manner. Right? You could,
1: yeah. you could, which and, I'm
2: sure is what most of them are doing, right?
1: And uh, you know, we're dealing with some things down in the beaches now, where we're talking about similar sorts of interest yeah. levels and.
2: Yeah. And so so that leads us into demographics and and so how how focuses your team on demographics and I mean it might, certainly with retail I mean that's one of the biggest asset classes that really depends on
1: who lives in and around that that particular asset how deep do you guys go what kind of resources do you use we we have a number of different services that we uh, that we pull the demographics from, uh, but with any whether you're in retail leasing or whether you're in our business uh, or any landlord, it really is one of the major drivers as to why you're putting a tenant where you are and why you're buying a center where you are. You know, it's it's funny because, and I I mentioned places like you know the provincial capitals, the Victorias and the Ottawas, and Edmonton uh, will get there. Yeah, Edmonton, exactly. It'll get back there. But all these places where you have so many civil servants in one area, and so then you find the right node in the right market and right area, and it's the most stable. Demographics: most uh, two-income families, each making ninety thousand dollars, and uh, they will for the rest of their lives. Exactly, so they'll, they'll retire at fifty with a pension at ninety thousand, exactly. and then they get, get an index pension when they're done, yeah. and and so
0: and they'll keep shopping into their eighties.
1: <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> so you get whereas you know in places like Vancouver and Toronto, you have highs and lows in terms of different markets where you're going to be, but those places tend to be pretty flat all over. So,
0: where are you seeing? Obviously, demographic studies would uh, you know lead to development if the numbers make sense. So, where are you seeing the most building across the country right now?
1: Continues to be southern Ontario and. The lower mainland. There's still continuing and it's probably a trailing effect, but in Alberta there there still continues to be a lot of retail development that has continued on. And actually it hasn't suffered through the downturn in Alberta. Would that be projects that were
0: started kind of prior to oil tanking, or just people groups have realized they're looking at a forty-year time horizon? So like generally
1: that. started before, but nothing stopped, I'd say. And like I said, the leasing hasn't really suffered, which is the amazing thing. You know, you pre-lease X amount, you get the anchors, and then you think, oh no, we're not going to be able to fill the rest, but they've been able to fill it at, at decent lease rate.
0: Rates. So, you, construction costs would be down as well right now, obviously. Exactly. The yeah. Market exactly. yeah, I
2: heard. I was talking actually to a uh, GC out of Alberta saying they're down 15 to 20 percent. Yep. just, just. Price adjustment because they yeah. got to keep their doors open. You wanted to mention Edmonton
1: or to sort of talk through that. What was it in particular that came oh, to mind? It, it, not not necessarily in particular, but just saying another one of those provincial public servant uh, markets that works well for retail in terms of stability. But obviously, the downturn has caused some. It hasn't caused much trepidation from tenants. Uh, it hasn't caused a downturn in lease rates necessarily, but certainly has caused some trepidation from investors and from vendors as well just as nobody has wanted to sell into the market that's out yeah. there. I think that's going to change as we move towards the end of this year. It already has. There's been a number of transactions that have started happening in in Edmonton and Calgary that have shown that, you know, cap rates continue to be strong.
2: Yeah, as a if at First National, you know, we look at it if there's if it's grocery anchored we probably will be okay. Anything else? You just you know because there's still that concern. Where's the bottom, right? At what point does is the the population going to stop shrinking if it hasn't already? You know, there's just you know there's that worry that the retail, particularly with all the other concerns of online shopping, et cetera, et cetera. If there isn't that shopping center, I think most financing companies across the country just are saying sorry, I, I'm not interested right now. Mm-hmm. But in, in Alberta specifically, in Alberta to, to, to specifically, yeah, clear. no, of course, yeah, no, sorry, yeah, just to be specific. Yeah. And I think that that I mean, of course, if you're an investor, you're, you're an owner, you need the financing. So if you're going to your regular banks or going to your your financing companies, and they're saying I'm, I'm unable to help you here. That's going to slow that marketplace, right? Yeah.
1: I, as I said, I, I just see it picking up because some of the fundamentals of not the fundamentals in the market, but the retail fundamentals continue to be so strong that people didn't expect. Perhaps we may see a pick up as as we look towards the end of the year. And Again, you, it, you, it, you, debt is debt is key. There's no doubt. You guys are are key to whether that yeah. happens or not.
2: Yeah, and I, I do I do think talking to, to 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 people in our industry on the finance side, I think we are starting to feel like it's bottomed. Right, that there is slowly starting to change. And that it's stabilized. And so I think we are starting to slowly but surely get back in. RBC is now just out rolling another uh, CMBS pool doing the marketing. And they've got a single Alberta asset in this pool, which is the first time they've had one in for a couple of years. And they're they're just saying, We want to test the market, we want to see how everybody responds. And not that CMBS is coming back in full swing, but there's a that's a nice barometer to see that, you know, maybe the attitude has changed a bit on on the Alberta marketplace.
0: If the three of us were to, to pool our money right now, we're to invest in a market on, say, a five-year time horizon, where would you want to put the big pile of cash that we put together right now?
1: Number number one, in terms of the product choice in retail, I think you definitely want to go for convenience retail, daily use retail. So that's you talk about the grocery anchor, the pharmacy anchor, the open-air strip. And in terms of location, certainly... It's easy to talk about southern Ontario, you know, you can talk about there's there's more high risk scenarios, but I think if you look towards those bedroom communities outside of Toronto, where are young families going to be moving because they can't afford to live in Toronto? So where is the growth going to be? Where is the consumer spending going to be? It's going to be in those markets whether it be Sadly, it's getting further and further outside the city, whether it be an hour outside the city. So do you go well from beyond? Do you go up to Orangeville? Do you go out to those outer regions? And that's where probably the retail growth and the consumer spending growth will be, and you'll be steady for the next 20, 30 years.
2: It's, it's anecdotal at this point, but Kitchener Waterloo's been top of mind for a lot of my colleagues in the industry, whether it be on the lending side or any other side of the of the industry, simply because of the the, the the speed train that's being proposed to go from Toronto to Detroit, I believe, and with with a couple stops, one of them being KW, and that would all of a sudden make the the that trip be- from Union Station to downtown Kitchener twenty five minutes. That, right, that for that totally for, for changes sake, it. The, uh,
0: the, the three markets we just discussed are all probably by car in the best times, an hour and 15 minutes from Toronto. Yeah, with no traffic. Yeah, Yeah, but upwards
2: of two if you're stuck in rush hour, for sure. Grocery store reporting revenues. Mm -hmm. So this is a thing that is Absolutely standard in many markets around the world, particularly in the US. In Canada, for some reason, it's not. Do you have any comment on that? Why? I mean, sorry, let me just give you some context. As a lender, uh, when you've got these grocery anchored stores, the success of that grocery store matters greatly because if that grocery store is performing poorly and there's a potential that it's going to move to another location, that means the entire center is. You know, or it has it has capacity to to terminate that entire center, especially if there's you know go dark clauses or co co tenancy clauses or whatever it may be. So we always want the grocery store to report their revenue so that we can verify that this is a longstanding or or a successful grocery store and that it will stay there for a long time. But in Canada, for whatever reason, grocery stores are very reluctant to report their revenues. They don't do it to their landlords and they don't certainly then we don't get to see it on the financing side.
1: Do you know? Do you have any comment on that? Uh, it certainly was a changed practice when I first got in the business, and it was every single one, you'd get the report and you'd see the monthly sales, and it was just part of the lease that you had to report sales. And then I'm not sure, it was around the early 2000s, suddenly they started pulling it out of leases. and I'm not sure who led the charge nor who accepted this change, I don't know what, it, what lenders or what landlords accepted it, but it just started to fade, and then you had to go to you know, rumor and innuendo as to whether it was doing well or not. Sobeys knew all of Metro's sales, Metro knew all of Loblaw's sales, but none of them would tell you directly what their own sales were in any particular store, which, and we're certainly not allowed, a lot of the times we're not allowed to release that information. Uh, when we're marketing, you know, even if we still have some older leases that still have it in it, we're not allowed to release the information in our marketing sometimes. is, is it, so then it's
0: just based on, purely on the fact that you're getting that covenant and you need to. Which, which is.
1: is fine, which was fine. I think it's a little less fine when you have questions about Sobeys Safeway. I think it's a little less fine when Amazon comes in and buys Whole Foods. And what does that mean? It's less fine when Walmart opens up a, you know, a super center right around the corner from your Metro and your Loblaws. So there's a lot more tumultuous times in, in grocery right now. And so it, it means more than it ever did for a lot of these stores.
0: The other one that kind of surprised me in a similar vein of uh, not reporting sales is for uh, quick service restaurants which for who's not into retail is just you know fast food joints they frequently are owned by a franchisee and you're not getting the corporate covenant and the leases maybe a third of the time they'll report sales and uh, the rest of the time they don't so it's you're really kind of rolling the dice in a small market with those kind of purchases.
1: No, absolutely. I think sometimes you look at the sign on the front of retail, it's easy to look at the sign on the front and just accept it as, you know, oh, oh it's well, a McDonald's, it must be doing great. Yeah. What, whatever whatever yeah, retail whatever and is, yeah. whatever type of, whether it be fast food or whether it be grocery, but obviously there's a lot more to it than that. And yeah, the changing times, I mean, with Burger King, Tim Hortons coming in, and it used to be used to get the Tim Hortons Covenant. Well, those guys don't. Burger King doesn't give out corporate covenants and no, no longer will Tim Hortons give out corporate covenants. That Changes the makeup of all these little boxes across the country as they, as they build more. So it's it's changing times. You have to do your homework
0: because previously, when you were, were getting the corporate covenant, you know that was as good as a government of Canada bond in terms sure. of safety. You know people people would pay ridiculously low cap rates in very small markets for uh, for Tim Hortons for you know standalone on a property. But uh, yeah, that would definitely change now.
2: You mentioned Amazon
1: purchasing Whole Foods. How do you think that that will impact the retail market, if at all? The effect, the, market, the effect in the Canadian market, as the effect in of Amazon in general on the Canadian market, it hasn't been as pronounced as what's happened in the states. Mostly because they haven't focused on it as yet. You know, they use Canada Post to deliver their their, their packages. They don't have massive warehouses or, or urban warehouses mm-hmm. like they do in the U.S. I assume it's a matter of time but certainly the you know the discussion about whole foods is how do we get freezer space how do we get food delivery across the US and i think this is their first entree into it as to how do they start competing with some of the grocery stores and it's not just once you have the refrigerated warehouses and once you have the urban stores with those kind of warehousing you don't have to just sell the groceries from Whole Foods, suddenly, the whole Amazon system comes through the back
2: right and they're foods. and they're building massive fulfillment centers in yep. multiple locations across the country and for those that that didn't see it on the news a couple of months ago, they've also been working on sort of a a non checkout or a checkout list grocery store right where yes. you, you've got an app on your phone, you kind of scan in when you walk in, you just throw a bunch of stuff in your bag and walk out and it just automatically pings you for the amount, which I think is appealing to a lot of people. It, you know, I, I use this example: you know, the first time you ever use an Uber, and you just kind of stop and you just kind of get out and walk away. It, it is refreshing, right? You don't have to go through this sort of long-standing transaction process where the the driver's fiddling with some, you know, especially you're playing with a card or whatever, right? It's there is
1: there is something just kind of you know releasing about just walking away, right? <laughs> so, you, so you wonder what it all means, though, in terms of so think of all these these cashiers lined up, and all of a sudden all the cashiers disappear, and for Uber for that matter you know suddenly all the drivers disappear because everything becomes automated yeah. and then all these jobs disappear and then my whole scenario about you know strong Consumer spending in these secondary markets, and suddenly all these people actually don't have jobs anymore. Yeah, because retail changes so quickly. Yeah, and so and can, can the
2: education can the education systems keep up to educate or to train these people into different different sectors? Uh, this is a big departure, obviously. From what yeah, we just that's okay. About, we we, <laughs> we, we <meet. laughs> this, about is, this is global, <laughs> global,
1: But but it is actually, you know, when it gets back to retail, the autonomous cars. Is going also going to have a big effect on retail because suddenly, you know, Seniors. I saw a presentation recently where they were talking about just yeah, the car will be circling your neighborhood.
2: You're with, not going to need a, a, you
1: need a car. Yeah, it will right, yeah. we'll be circling your neighborhood with all the product, and you just tap in, and the car pulls up in front. You go out, pull the stuff off the truck because it is your store. Your store comes to you instead of you going to
2: this store. Yeah, and I've heard I've heard things about you know you don't need to have a toolbox because they'll have these sort of localized tool centers where you just you you push on your app. Oh, I need a hammer, and a hammer will just show up at your front door, and you give you know ten minutes later you give it back, and so you don't need to own these these assets. You don't need to own these
1: tools that you use once every six months because they'll just be available to you in your community. But I think it's interesting that's also where you go to these secondary markets. This is most of that is an urban phenomenon. Yeah. All the, the ability to do, deliver these services. You need a lot of people in, in that phenomenon. neighborhood, sure. So the question is again, if you're looking at retail, where could you be insulated a little bit? Well, you move away from those urban centers and the traditional retail, you know, perhaps has a longer horizon on it.
0: it can't, anything that relies on density is going to have slow adoption in Canada. This is not This is not a dense country out of a no. few. Uh, Other than few spots, yeah,
2: yeah, two yeah. or three, two, three locations. Right. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we've missed? Is there anything that you find interesting in, the, in your in your industry that would be of value to to mention? What are we? T- what a time are we had there!
1: Yeah, so we're kind of let's. If there's anything else you want to mention or talk about, maybe the only thing we didn't cover was just urban retail. Okay, talking about well, we, you know, we kind of touched on it in a few different ways what we were just talking about, but certainly that is the big big push for mixed use urban retail. That's where the institutions are moving. That's where the REITs are moving. That's where the investment is moving in major ways. And so the question is. How does that change retail? How much are these spaces going to cost? How are we going to supply them? How are we going to? do We're talking about multi-level podiums with retail. We're talking about how do we get the the shipments in? How much urban mass do you need to have all these spaces? Those are all the questions that are surrounding a lot of what's well, that's going a, that, forward. I, Not I, building I, big box anymore. And
2: that's a good. That's a good because I did have that on my mind. You know, how does an IKEA or a Costco enter a, a, a sort of a dense urban environment? I saw IKEA's got a small storefront that they've just popped the up. Restaurant? Now. Yeah. Is it just the it's restaurant? A, it's, well, just, it's, restaurant so it's just for the Swedish meatballs. That's so you it. Get the, you get
1: the meatballs, the hot dog, <laughs> and the ice cream, yeah. and, and then a you're couple items. Like yes. that's that's about that's it, it. Right?
2: and it, so. And what are you seeing in that in that space? Like, how are these these large box stores coming into a market where they? I mean, they can't afford, you know, to, to run their business on 60 dollars $60 net rents,
1: right? So no, so it's a lot of distribution for just like we talked about Amazon. It's urban distribution for online purchases, whether you're Best Buy or whether you're IKEA. Then you the point of pickup in the city. But that requires you know constant constant supply of product to these, uh, to these urban centers because you just go to these urban stores because you can't put that much on site. It's small format, it's uh, reduced format and it's uh, really supply chain management, which is the key to all the
2: and, and you're relying on the, the consumer being comfortable purchasing whatever that particular item is online. That's right? it. They don't, they don't. There's no touch and feel aspect to
1: it. That's it. That's absolutely it. Then Which is
2: kind of counter. I mean, using IKEA as an example, I mean, their whole business model is come walk around, see the design, sit in it, line it, you know. So how, do, how does how do those types of Costco, I guess, is similar, right? I mean, it's, it's they're
0: paying rent on spaces that are absolutely enormous. Those so maybe they did that math. It's, uh,
2: yeah, right. So how do yeah. they how do they get, enter into that marketplace, the uh,
1: urban marketplace? I think again, yes, that is. And so you go and you touch and you feel. Become I think people become so familiar with some of the product, so familiar with the with the IKEA product that the basic staples of what they need, they can still order online. Maybe they have to go out to the store and touch and feel, and then they go home and think about it. It's just another way of touching the the consumer. Where you touch them in store, and then you touch them online, and then they yeah. the convenient pickup for their condo or or whatever. Those those stores as well. When you talk about IKEA and and Costco, that gets back to again, how do you draw people in? People talk about entertainment retailing and you think of we talked about miniature golf. You think yeah. about miniature golf or or, or movies or, or whatever. But the entertainment retailing is actually Costco. It's actually IKEA. It's actually winners. It's actually people going in. Costco, you go in, you're gonna buy this on a big skid and that on a big skid, but you're also gonna buy all these other things because you're hunting around looking for product. It's about the hunt, yeah. it's about the pursuit. <laughs> I Everybody's
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, oh man, it's, my, my, I, it's the six hundred dollar trip, right? Always, and my wife and I, we go around actively saying out loud, "Only the necessities, only the necessities," because <laughs> you never, oh, I could use a new coffee maker, oh, I could use a new blender, right? And like, it's hard, it's,
1: it's hard, to, it's hard to, to avoid that. It's amazing that they've done it that you can go to other stores and you don't do that, but you go there and you suddenly they because they have new product on the shelves. Constantly, and that's again supply chain. Yeah. Being able to turn over that product for you, you suddenly get excited and you buy. And same thing with winners you go in, it's new stuff. Women go to winners not because they need to buy something; yeah, yeah. it's because they want to go shopping. I'm very good at just sitting around at winners doing nothing. Yes, <laughs> uh, that's that's a definitely not. Uh, it's a female phenomenon. Yeah, to, to winners should it's. add <laughs> sort of some sort of
2: coffee type environment so the men can go and hang out. Maybe actually maybe we're a sports bar. Put up yeah, some TVs or
0: something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I experience the the opposite. I always like the cost of things in there, but I walk in and just feel overwhelmed by the fact that I got to hunt for it. I'm like, oh, this is exhausting. Yeah, no. Should I get a twenty dollar pair of jeans? Like I could just. Walk across the street and pay eighty and get what I want right away, but yeah, it's, it's a disascentive to me. Do you have any? Do you have any idea how the the newer outlet malls are performing?
1: Reportedly, very well, but again, no. There's no releases on uh, on sales. These are tightly held. I mean, you've either got Rio Can or Smart Centers or uh, Ivanhoe. In terms of all these malls, I think from the perspective of, this is a layman's perspective, even though I'm in the business, a layman's perspective, you go to any one of these malls, we visit everyone across the country. The traffic and foot traffic uh, is overwhelming. I do wonder though, again, it's the entertainment purpose. People go to be entertained. How much are they actually buying? What are the actual sales levels in these malls? That has not been answered by most of our people. they, They tell us they're doing very well. Sales are, you know, at projections, over projections, et cetera. But I, I do have some doubts on some of them as to what the actual consumer spending is.
0: And they'd be operating on thinner margins as
1: well, so it's uh, they're theoretically exactly right? Theoretically, uh, although I, I actually don't believe that. I think the product that's put in a lot of these outlet malls is discount product anyways. It's not traditional product from the stores. It's a separate supply chain completely coming purely Mm -hmm. for the discount for the outlet malls. In terms of quality? In terms uh, of quality, in terms of what the product they're putting in the stores, you might have the same logo on it, but it's not the same product as you'd be buying in Yorkdale. In
0: in the U.S., the outlet malls there is it the same practice of having kind of second tier product.
1: Yeah, sent I mean there? It, it it happened. You know, I may be speaking out of school, but it it happened as as the boom in these outlet malls. You can't supply it all just by returns and overstocks. Uh, it's there's it as much in some markets. It appears there's as much outlet uh, shopping as there is regular shopping. So they created an entirely different platform, entirely different supply chain to produce product for these outlet malls. So it's all outlet product. And in fact, Winners and HomeSense is the same thing. Winners and HomeSense are not overstocks of traditional retailers. They are their own supply chain that Winners and HomeSense create and put labels on. And, and Marshall's, and I think, falls in Mar- the same. Yeah. the same, yeah. same group. Do you see a
2: trend going towards more outlet mall style shopping or do you see other trends I mean uh, for a while it was big box centers that were going up popping up everywhere with you know best buys and sports or sport checks is there a trend towards smaller space I mean what do you see in this sort of more on the development
1: new new product where, where do you see the the retail yeah, sector yeah. going again well we well I, I you know talk down the lifestyle centers mm-hmm. it's lifestyle centers in a in a manner of speaking mm-hmm. that you've got a much higher restaurant component that yeah. you're talking one-third restaurant restaurants, if not more, in some of these. And you're talking entertainment, whether it be entertainment retailers that provide that sort of interesting experience, or just pure entertainment. It's really about drawing people out of their houses, drawing them offline, and putting them in spaces. And and so so that's what the the new retail looks like. There's not a lot in, in, uh, in Canada that look like that. And I think we're still trying to find our way. These outlet malls are sort of along those lines, kind of halfway there, but we're certainly, you know, 10, 20 years behind the U.S. in terms of these types of developments.
2: The weather's got to be a challenge for that, though. I I can use, you know, visiting Arizona or California, there's lots of these where it's it's kind of trendy, and there's these sort of independent, you know, cool restaurants and coffee shops, and it's kind of a cool vibe, and you just want to, you know, even if you're not there for shopping, there's there's retail, and you're kind of hanging out, and there's lots of people, and your people watching, it's just kind of a place to go, but it's all outside, and it's nice and warm out. So how do you replicate that in in an environment like, like Canada uh, you don't yeah.
1: um, unless you go enclosed and that's why we're behind that's the challenge. you challenge. Right, because yeah. you can't afford to go enclosed so then what do you do so there's a couple markets you can do it and you get 9 months out of the year that you can do it but it's also when when we we're talking earlier about you know what kind of retailers do you put in i think we say the cool independent and the vibe and all these sort of mm-hmm. things that's also what a lot of landlords are trying to do is find out who that one restaurant is find out what that one retailer is that nobody else has. That's an independent that everybody loves. How, if you get them into your into your center or two or three of them into your center, you're suddenly differentiating yourself from what Adam talked about earlier, where you know all retail looks the same across the country. Uh, that's another key to you know making your center more successful is finding those independents.
0: Uh, that is an interesting counterpoint. Lenders don't like to see counter. It can really like see independent. <laughs> independence. Oh, absolutely, right it's, it's counter. It's counterintuitive to
1: everything. You go do it, but we just won't finance. Who's it for this you? guy's covenant? This is I've never yeah. heard of this guy, yeah. and you go no, this is the hottest thing. You, you you've never seen this guy. You've got to come to Saskatoon. This guy's the best. You go. Ah, don't yeah, care. Lenders yeah. don't like new and trendy. No, yeah.
0: was Subway not interested in putting in a location? Yeah, exactly. What's the problem exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We always like to end off this segment by asking our guest to provide two pieces of advice to a younger version of yourself. So you go back to the start of your career 20 years ago. What two pieces of advice would you uh,
1: impart? First one would be focus. You get into the business; uh, it's you may not know all the different uh, components and pieces of how all the how the business works, but I think you have to find something that interests you. Find something that you can be, become passionate about. And focus on it, become an expert in whatever that may be. And you know, whether that be, you know, on the on the mortgage side or whether that be on the real estate side or whether it be industrial, retail, whatever. Leasing. Yeah, leasing. You know what? Find your thing and become find your niche and become the guy for that niche. And you know what? For most of the time for, for, for certainly the first few years, you'll be telling everybody you're the guy in that niche and everybody'll just be going, What? Like, yeah, good luck. Uh, but eventually, you'll get there. And did, I th- did
0: you start a retail from day one?
1: Nope, and that's part of you know that's part of the learning curve. That I started off for three months in industrial leasing and said, "There's no way I can do this for the rest of my life." No offense to any industrial leasing guys out there. Then I be- just became a generalist in investment, and so you know I sold everything from office buildings to land to apartments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which was great. But I soon realized that I didn't actually offer any uh, value to anybody other than just running around. Being the middleman. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I wasn't actually the expert in what I was doing, and that didn't make any sense to me. So that's when I changed focus and became the retail, retail expert. And I'd say the second, the second piece of advice is patience, which again, as I said, at the first few years, you run around telling everybody what you're doing, and people kind of raise one eyebrow and go, yeah, okay. There's a lot of good guys that do that. You're not going to be the... But just be patient. It takes a long time, you know, and eventually you'll get there. And eventually also, I find, this isn't something I realized till later, but when you're 25 and you're hanging out with a bunch of 25-year-old guys all bemoaning your fate and and how tough life is, and then suddenly you're 30 and things are a little better, but you're still with your buddies bemoaning your fate, and and then suddenly you're 35 and some of your buddies, maybe they're at an institution or maybe they're at a developer and they're starting to get some... Some wherewithal and and some capacity to help you in business, and then suddenly you're at my age of 45, and everybody I grew up with in the business is now, you know, in controlling positions across the business. You grow up with your peers, you grow up in the business, and suddenly, with patience, you get where you never thought you were going to get to. Forever, thank you. So network, yep, yeah, network,
0: Keep going to to all the conferences, I guess. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Actually, I think when we first talked about having you on the podcast, it was at a conference in Regina. It was at a conference. So. It's
1: <laughs> In Regina. Yeah. So
0: after 20 years of hard work, you two will one day appear on a podcast. It's uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> made it. <Yeah. laughs> Us too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Up next, we've got the new segment of the show. We're going to talk about the Land and Development Conference. I attended that. I believe, Aaron, you attended I did, it as yes. well. Yeah. Yep. Matthew, were you at that conference? Or you skipped that one. I skipped that conference. Okay. Sorry, all right. Fair enough. Can't go to all of them, although uh, I guess almost all of them. So the way we like to summarize it is to take the top three tweets from the conference and kind of discuss each one. The first one comes from former podcast guest, Jeremiah Sheamus. If OMB reform comes into play, unzoned land will go down in price. And that was a quote from Jeff Hall, president of Hallmark Development. This conference would have been, I guess, the beginning of May. And there's been a lot more discussion since then about taking the taking the fangs out of out of the OMB and Shifting the power back back to the back to the NIMBY's. And it would it would make sense, obviously, that yeah, anything unzoned, anything now is a bigger question mark around it, the, the value would be less. There's there's no way around that. If land is an overheated segment in some markets right now, so maybe it's not the worst thing to slow it down, but it will definitely, to use the most overused word in real estate, it would bifurcate the market between between zoned and unzoned. Any thoughts, guys?
1: It's probably not my area of expertise. Okay. I let
0: it out. <laughs>
2: Not my area of expertise either, but I do believe the OMB needs to be reformed, but I
1: worry that it goes too far the other direction. Yeah. It's got bogged down, and as I said, NIMBYism just bogged down in too many different...
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the nice things herbs. about the OMB is quick decisions, concise and final, right? I mean, it's, it's one of the few areas of government where they just kind of drop the hammer, this is the way it's going to be, and go ahead, move on, right? And, and often governments just take way too long and appeal process, and I, I worry that they enter into too much of that ability to just, you know, next thing you know, it'll take five years to get something
0: rezoned, and that, that's just bad for business all around. Yeah, the hold period is a painful part for any developer. Right, on, uh, on right. And
2: so to, to Jeff Hall's point, that's probably why he thinks that value of land is going to go down, because there's just going to be less people willing to take the the pain or, or go through the headache of you know getting it
0: rezoned. Something that kind of flies in the face of prices going down. This is from Igor Dragovic. Over the next year, panelists anticipate land prices in GTA to increase by 20% which is a staggering amount given that they're already up. I don't even know how much over the, last, over the last five years, but you're talking about building on a base that's quite inflated and a further, a further 20% is just astronomical. I remember sitting at a conference at the start of the year, listening to a gentleman from Altus, and the question posed there was, if you could get into one asset class right now for kind of two-year return, what would it be? And his immediate answer was Toronto land. That's what it would be. And 20% return would obviously you know, fulfill that objective. The next one we've got is from the real estate forums. It's the Twitter account of the of the group that runs them. Developments can get better financing in Halifax versus Toronto these days, if the lender likes your project and track record. And that is a quote from First National's own Jeremy Wedgeberry, who was on a on a panel there. I've heard this as well actually for him say that outside of panels. And for whatever reason, the Halifax market is highly, highly competitive. The banks and the non-bank lenders just fall all over themselves trying to uh, trying to race to the bottom in terms of in terms of yield for their for their mortgage. Do you know why, Aaron? I know that I think you've talked about this before too. Do you know the reason why?
2: I do think Scotia has a lot to do with that. Just being in that market, them being sort of centered in that market, they want to be a big presence in that market. So they do price there differently than they do anywhere else in the country. Which is sort of they're the leader, and so people follow them down. And if you want to, if you want to do business with some of the you know the, the large institutions out there, there really isn't that many. There's there's you know f- I, 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 somewhere between five and ten sort of large families that do the majority, the vast majority of the development and ownership of, of assets out there. So if you want to play with those those clients, you've got to you've got to. To come down in price to match what what Scotia has done, and Desjardins to a certain extent as well. It can, it can be very very tightly priced, but that that's it's just such a small market. Ultimately, with so few players, you know, you, you can't find the yields there, right? It, it, other than you know competing with Scotia.
0: Hmm. Do you have much exposure? Uh, not exposure. Do you, do you have much activity in uh, Halifax?
1: Uh, we do. We no. will bring them all out there in a couple of weeks. No, we do a lot of work in Atlantic Canada. I would say I'm not sure. I mean, lending is different than than my business. I, I don't know if it's something to do. We find it in the Saskatoon's and the Regina's and the Halifaxes that people need to put a certain amount of capital out in different regions or different markets. Mm-hmm. And you know, when those markets are small, then there's you know perhaps a. It's a little out of whack as to the pricing because there's so many people have to pursue that, that one deal, that one uh, loan, that one property or something. I'm not, again, I'm not sure if that's why would somebody stray out of their way all the way to Halifax to, to put a loan down. I'm not sure if, if the fundamentals aren't there. Because quite frankly, you know, when you talk about demographics, the fundamentals are not there. But I was just I was in Halifax twice in the last six weeks, and the development that is going on in that market there's few places outside of Toronto and Vancouver, maybe now Montreal, some of the residential going on there, but there's few places that I've seen with that many cranes, both for office and residential in downtown Halifax and a lot of apartments, a lot of condos, right. yeah, huge and and uh, what they're finishing, I think there's four office towers all going up or just recently finished that are over. 250,000, 300,000 square feet each. In a market like that, it, it was uh, surprising.
0: And if they're owned by separate uh, owners, there could be price competition for sure on the, the leasing side.
1: Now, that, that said, there's no growth, no major growth. There's no growth, uh, no major absorption in office, and there's no major growth in population. So all you're doing is you know emptying out the the Bs and the Cs. Yeah, they've got a strong university sort of college education presence though. Absolutely. Oh, well, they they've got great in terms of employment uh, who you can get there, but there's just no no growth in employment, there's no growth in in anything but except for real estate. <laughs> <laughs> a except lot of growth estate. in real estate. Yeah,
0: interesting. Well, that is the end of the show. I'd like to thank our guest Matt for coming on. Uh, it was a great perspective on you know retail at a national level. It was nice to, to not you know, talk to, about Toronto. Yeah, only. Break, yeah. break free. Once, <laughs> if uh, if you enjoyed the show, you know tell somebody who's into who's into retail that uh, they should give it a listen. If you found it helpful, subscribe in iTunes. Leave a review if you're so inclined. And that is, we'll see you in the next one. <laughs>